I want you to try to imagine something this morning. You wake up tomorrow and your spouse looks at you and they say, we're in danger. We are in trouble. You need to get a suitcase together. You need to get a duffel bag, whatever you can find. You need to pack it with as much as you can get in there. The things that are most important to you, you need to pack it. We need to gather the family up. We've got to go right now. We are in danger. We're in trouble. Our lives are at risk. Can you imagine if something like that were to happen tomorrow and you were often running with your family, running for your lives? You know, some people in the world don't have to imagine what that's like. They're actually living it right now. We saw that in February as this senseless war in Ukraine began and Ukrainian citizens were packed into trains and the trains were headed to places like Romania or, or Poland or other nearby European countries that would, would take these people and, and take them to safety. We literally saw that happen as people were displaced from their homes and they were fleeing for their lives. We're beginning a new series today that speaks to a group of people that actually live that out. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter is addressing a group of people who were in trouble. They were in danger. They were being persecuted. And, and he speaks to them and he invites them to remain faithful and to continue to live devoted to Christ even in the midst of persecution. And I want to take you to uh, just the first two verses of First Peter to, as, a, as a way to introduce this, this series idea to you. Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So we get an idea of the kind of people and the kind of situation that Peter is addressing. In Asia Minor, which is known as modern-day Turkey, there are these provinces, Cappadocia, Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia. And there's a group of believers who have come under the persecution of Rome. And because of this persecution, they were forced to be scattered in these places. And one of the things that happens when people are scattered is they live in this tension. This tension of, I have my home country, my home customs, the things that are familiar to me and the things that have value to me. And I want to preserve those. I want to keep this language or keep this accent or, or keep this trade that I have. But then they also find the pre or, or experience the pressure of assimilating into a new culture. And so Peter is writing to Christians who are going to face double pressure. Not only are they being scattered from one place to another, but now there are, they're suffering persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And they're going to live with this tension of being in the world, but not being of the world. This tension of maintaining their customs and their habits, but also by necessity assimilating into whatever the culture around them looked like. It's all because of this guy named Nero. So Peter's living in Rome. And at the time, uh, the emperor is a guy named Nero. And there's a section of Rome that he wants to redevelop. But the problem is there's people living there. And the, he comes up with this plan to get rid of the people living there. I'm going to have some people go and they're going to set fire to this part of the city. 
It's going to burn to the ground and that'll give me the chance to redevelop it. What he didn't think through is how mad people were going to be when their homes and their businesses and their schools burned to the ground. So he needed a scapegoat. Who could I blame this fire on? And the easiest choice was this new, obscure, small, religious minority known as Christians. And Nero said, it was the Christians. The Christians burned down your city. They burned down your homes. They burned down your schools. It was them. Let's get them. And a massive persecution of Christians throughout the empire ensued. Peter living in Rome, he's watching all this happen. He's in the later part of his life. He knows his own execution is on the horizon, just as Jesus said it would be. And he writes to these believers that are scattered. And he wants to send a a word of encouragement to them. And if we could just think of one word to describe the heart of what Peter is saying to these believers scattered throughout these different places. Peter is saying, you're called to live differently. You're called to be a different kind of people. Because you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, even though you're scattered, even though you're not in your homes, you're going to, by necessity, have to assimilate in the culture and do jobs and do certain things to get by. But as you do that by necessity, don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you're called to be different. Peter begins the the letter by saying, you're God's elect. You're chosen. You're set apart by God. And because you're chosen and set apart by God, you are to live differently in the world. So over the next few weeks, we're going to walk through the epistle of of 1 Peter And we're going to look at all the different ways that Christians are called to be different. And what I hope you see is that just as those early first century believers were called to be different, we are too. Like the call is no less to us. There is a distinctiveness about our lives and our life together that should be different from the ways of the world. As we begin 1 Peter 1, I would say to us that we as Christians... We have a different hope. We live with a different kind of hope. You're going to see that as we walk through these first few verses of chapter 1. So let's look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them 
that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Not bad for a fisherman from Galilee, huh? God certainly did a miraculous work in Peter's life. And now he is sharing the hope that he has with these believers who are suffering persecution scattered throughout, throughout the province of Asia. Let me ask you, what are you hoping for today? What are some of the expectations that you have? As you think about the future, as you think about what's coming down the pike, as you look to the horizon of, of your future, your family's future, what hopes, what dreams, what expectations do you have today? This is a season where we look to the future and we look forward to new things. It's the beginning of a new school year. The, the calendar says that the year begins in January. But for those of us gathered here today, we know differently. The new year begins in August because the school year just dominates so much of, of our rhythms and, and the way we keep time. And so here we are. You are shopping for school supplies. And for all the students in the room, if you did not get a trapper keeper at Walmart, I think they're still available. Go get one now. You don't need that smartphone. All you need is a trapper keeper. Okay? If you don't know what that is, go see if there's any left. Hopefully all the 40-year-olds haven't already bought them up from you. Okay? Because I got mine. Um, but we're buying our school supplies. We're looking forward to a, a new year and the new things that come along with that. We're hoping for some good things in this new school year. But sometimes we use the word hope in a different way. Some of us also have a, a different way of thinking about hope. You've got a doctor's appointment coming up. You're on a journey towards healing. There's, there's some things in your life that are not right, that are not healthy, and, and you're needing medical professionals to help you with that. And, and you've got tests, and you've got scans, and you've got consultations coming up, and, and maybe you have an appointment in the not-too-distant future, and you're hoping for negative results, and you're hoping for clear scans, and you're hoping for some good news from the physicians. That's sort of the spectrum of how we use the word hope. There's lots of different ways, but let me just share three that I, I think is most common for us. First of all, hope is a verb. We use it as, a, as an action word. It, it, is, it is something that we do that expresses a desire for something good in the future. Uh, the kids might say, boy, I hope mommy and daddy are able to play kickball with me after supper. They're hoping for this thing to happen. They're hoping for, for time to allow them to do something fun after supper. We use it as a verb. Hope is a noun. It's the good thing in the future that's, that's on its way. We say things like, our hope is that Derek will arrive safely. We hope that he will have a good trip. Derek's safe arrival is the object of our hope. Here's one more. Here's how we use the word hope. It is the object or the reason for us to be optimistic about the future or to, to think that something might work out. We say things like, a good tailwind is our only hope of arriving on time. The tailwind is the object or the reason of our hope. 
And you might recognize the most famous cinematic use of this of this hope of this this usage of hope. I think you can place this. You are our only hope, Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan is the object of Princess Leia's hope. If you haven't seen the movie yet, where have you been? Seriously, where have you been? Hope, as most commonly used in our world, all three of those examples, none of them convey a guarantee. None of them convey that anything decisive or definite is going to happen. Hope is, is used at, to, to describe these kind of nebulous, can't really put our finger on it. There's, it's in the future. We, we, we hope that this good thing happens. We, it's our hope that this, this thing that we desire becomes a reality. But it's elusive and it's certainly not guaranteed. Many of us work in uh, high-pressure job situations. I mean, you've got a job, you've got a position, and your company is counting on you to deliver results. And so you walk into those situations and you are working things out with a team. You're making a plan. You're making things happen. And some of you are familiar with a magic little word that shows up in, in our, our world, especially our context here in Northwest Arkansas. I didn't know a whole lot about this magic little word, but I learned a lot about it during the pandemic. It's this word called logistics. <laughs> familiar with this? You feel familiar with this, this, this magic little word, logistics? Logistics, really, I didn't know a whole lot about it until logistics stopped working. The whole logistics universe it just ground to a halt during COVID-19. And it had consequences that you are continuing to deal with today. But people that make stuff can't work from home. And people that ship stuff can't work from home. And people that deliver stuff can't deliver it from home. And so when everybody else was at home, a very few amount of people were trying to keep logistic networks going. And, and we noticed. We noticed and here's what it looked like for me. We had a new worship pastor in May of 2020. And I said, Chad, you're called to be in the world, but not of the world. And part of what it means to be in the world of Bentonville, you got to ride a mountain bike. And so I let Chad ride my mountain bike and we took off on the trails behind the church here. We were going down the slaughter pen trail system. And this really is on me. Chad and I are both from the state of South Carolina. The highest point in South Carolina are the sand dunes at Myrtle Beach. They're about 20 feet high. So we had never seen mountains and we had never seen, you know, these cliffs and these rocks that we ride around here on these trails. And I just said, hey, man, just, uh, you know, take it easy and um, be careful and let's go. And we were we ripped down the trails and Chad survived for a while and then we went down this one trail and I was way ahead of him and he wasn't coming out of the trail. And I said, I guess I better wait on him. He wasn't coming out. Rode back up the trail to discover Chad laid out in the grass. The bike is 20 feet away. I said, dude, what happened? He's like, I'm, I'm really not sure. I can't tell you what happened. All I know is going down a hill and I woke up and here I am. <laughs> Thankfully, Chad was okay. 
The front wheel of my bike, however, looked like a taco shell, which makes for a really bumpy ride. And so in June of 2020, I took my bike to the bike shop. We got a few of those here in town. I said, I need a new wheel. I'll pay whatever it costs to get a new wheel. And I'd like it tomorrow. And they said, well, you might like it tomorrow, but we're not sure when we can get you a new wheel. You're a bike shop, right? Don't you sell tires and wheels and bike stuff? Yeah, but we ain't got that. You ever heard of this thing called COVID? Six months later, the bike shop calls me. Got your wheel in, sir. Bring your bike in. We'll put it on for you. I didn't know anything about logistics until it stopped working. And you deal with this. A lot of you deal with this every day. Man, you know about Gantt charts and spreadsheets and RFID chips. And there's all kinds of technology that you use to make things happen and to get things where they need to go. You have a plan. But when you're working this out with your team, when you're trying to deliver product, when you're doing your job or, or what, whatever it is in any realm, let me tell you what the world says to us. The world says to us, hope is not a plan. Hope is not a plan. You may have some objective. You may have something you want to accomplish. It may be great. You may have this great vision for what is going to happen and what you think is it could be a reality. And when people on your team says, great, that sounds awesome. How are we going to do that? And you say, well, we're just going to hope it happens. The world says, no, 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 no. Hope is not a plan. That's the world we live in. Hope is not a plan. And so when we come to Scripture, Scripture says something very different about hope. Because in the world we live in, hope won't get you a whole lot, will it? It won't get you a whole lot. It doesn't deliver like spreadsheets and Gantt charts and RFID chips. Those things deliver. Those things get results. But the Bible says these three remain, faith, hope, and love. That as we order our lives, as we, as we, as we think about what we should build our lives on, the Bible is saying these virtues of Christ is faith, hope, and love. These are the foundation. These are the things that we will build our life upon. And the world is saying, that's not a plan. That's not going to succeed you're not going to do anything building your life on those virtues. You need, a, you need a real plan. You need to make things happen. You need to get things done. The Bible is calling us to something else. God is calling us to, to something else. And the Bible has a different definition of hope. Peter says that we've been baptized into this new birth, into a living hope. This is a hope that the world doesn't have. This is a hope beyond spreadsheets and Gantt charts and RFID chips. This is a living hope that is guaranteed through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter says there? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and into an inheritance that is guaranteed. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. Most of the time we think about hope as this elusive, nebulous, very unclear future. It may or it may not happen. We certainly hope that it does. 
But Peter is saying we build our lives on Christian hope, on biblical hope, on hope that is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Peter is saying to these these exiles scattered throughout, away from their homeland, undergoing persecution. He's saying, I've seen Jesus. I've been with Jesus. I've been restored. I've been forgiven by Jesus. It's real. He rose from the dead. I was there on Saturday. I felt hopeless. I felt as if my life was done, as if it was over. But then on Sunday, God raised Jesus up to new life. He appeared to me. He commissioned us. He filled us with his Holy Spirit. And we can build our lives on this hope. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope. It will never perish, spoil, or fade. Peter has this kind of confidence that what God ultimately is doing in Christ is not something that we have to wait for. It is very much being delivered today. It is in our lives. We can can move forward confidently in this kind of hope. We already receive its benefits even as we wait for it to not yet be fully revealed. This is the living hope that we have. And it's different than any other kind of hope that you will encounter in the world. You see, what Peter is saying is that hope is a person. Hope is a person. That's the message of the church. That's the message of living this life in Christ Our hope is not built on anything we can manufacture, anything that we can do on our own, anything that we can plan out and we can anticipate. Our hope is in Christ. Hope is a person. What does it look like to live with this kind of hope? This hope that is guaranteed through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not too long ago, I was introduced to this sport of rock climbing. There's a gym in town. It's called Climb Bentonville. And I had a chance to go. And, and if you haven't been there, let me describe it for you. It's this, this massively tall building, this very high roof. And on the walls of the building are formations that look like the side of a, of a, of a mountain. And in these, these formations are little anchors and little handles and, and the goal is to, you know, use the handles and the anchors to climb up. And the most important thing about learning this new sport is getting this harness on. Because this harness is going to, to hold you to a rope. And that rope is literally the only thing keeping you from falling to your death. And so when they show you how to put on this harness. I usually don't pay attention to these things. You know, I, I buy something and, and, and it says some assembly required. I open the box. I look at the directions. I normally say, ah, who needs that? And I just go to work. Okay, but when I went to climb Bentonville and when I started climbing for the first time and they gave me this lecture about the harness and the rope, I listened intently I hung on every word. I wanted to make sure I didn't fall out of that thing. And I wanted to make sure I didn't fall to my death. And so they're telling me about the harness and the rope. And there's this process where someone belays you. And that's the, the, the rope attaches to your harness. It goes up to a pulley on the top of the face that you're going to climb. And then it comes down 
and someone attaches it to a harness that they have and they have a little device that has tension on it that as you climb, they pull it up and they keep tension on your rope so that you don't fall. And the person that volunteered to belay me, one of the staff members at Climb, was like this 98-pound little girl. And I said, I don't know anything about physics, but I know I weigh a whole lot more than you. Like, is there, is there someone else? I want someone who weighs more than me to belay me. Is, is there anybody that's a little beefier that we can get on the other end of that rope? Which, by the way, if we go climb together and I ask you to specifically belay me, don't take it personally. Okay? I'm looking out for me. Just don't take it personally. She said, no, no, it'd be good. You know, and sure enough, the way the tension happens and the way the pulleys work, it, it, all, it all works together. So I'll go up. She belays me. But then, there, if you don't have someone to belay you, there's a little device at the top. It's a, it's a self-belay mechanism. And, and, and you start your climb. You, you clip in. And the self-belay mechanism's at the top. It has just a little bit of tension on you. And, and what it does is as you climb, it kind of it climbs with you. And it keeps just a little bit of tension on the rope. Not enough that you can feel. Not enough that you, you, you feel that anything's impeding your climb. But it just sort of climbs up with you. And the first time I got to the top, I was proud of myself. I got to the top on the self-belay mechanism. I rang the bell. I was like, Lauren, take a picture. Put it on Instagram. This is awesome. So I ring the bell. Lauren takes a picture of me. Friends, there's one way down. There's one way down. If you haven't done this, I'll tell you, you will not have the energy to climb down. It will take all the energy that you have to get up. And there's one way down. You're about three feet from this self-belay mechanism that you didn't inspect. You didn't install. You didn't manufacture. You know nothing about this device. And, and you're 40 feet up in the air, and you have to do this. You have to fall back and let that self-belay mechanism catch you. And I'm sitting up there having never done that before in my life. And I look down, and it's 40 feet to the ground. And, 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 and just psyching myself up to just fall back and let this device catch me, it, 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 it took some time. But I eventually did it. And there's about two feet where you actually are, you're just, you're falling. Takes it about two feet to really grab. And then you just bounce down the wall. Let me just tell you, those, those first two feet when you've never done it before, not a fun experience. Now, since that first time, I've climbed on the self-belay mechanism maybe a hundred times. I'm not saying I still enjoy the fall down, the lean back to get down. I'm not saying I enjoy it, but I can do it pretty easily because that mechanism has proven itself again and again and again. And I can put my hope confidently in that mechanism. And here's what Peter's saying to the church. You are born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. I've been there. I've seen the resurrected Christ. Our hope is in a person. 
Our hope is in a person. We can live this distinctive way in the world. We can live in the face of persecution. We can live in the face of difficulty. We can live in the face of an unknown future because our hope is in Jesus. And he's proven himself time and time again. What crazy people live this way? What, what, what kind of crazy people live and order their lives in such a way not based on their wealth or not based on their plans or not based upon their, their privilege or their, their degrees or their education or their research. What kind of people live in such a way that they put it all on Jesus? What a crazy, different way to live. Who lives this way? Paul calls them God's elect. God's elect. I want to tell you about a person who I think is part of God's elect. I know it's a big statement, okay, and I don't want to embarrass them. And I think, I think you know who they are. It's a big statement, but I want to tell you about a person who I believe is God's elect. You ready for this, church? It's you. It's you. You are set apart. You're chosen by God. You are forgiven of your sins. You're filled with God's Holy Spirit. You're given a new life in Christ. You are chosen by God. Do you realize God picked you out? God picked you out and he said, I want you. I want you to live in relationship with me. I want you to fulfill this purpose that I have for your life. You are my elect. You are my chosen. I've given my one and only son for you. I've got great plans and great purposes for your life. I want to fill you with my Holy Spirit and I want to give you this inheritance. This inheritance that will never perish, never spoil, never fade. It's guaranteed because of what God has done in Christ. We are the elect of God. We are chosen by God. Isn't that good news this morning? Isn't it good news that we can live this way? We are the people that are out on a limb with God. And several times in your life, God's going to ask you, to fall back and trust me. Several times in your life, God's elect, those gathered here on a Sunday morning, God's going to ask you, this is where you fall back. You've done a good job climbing. You've, got, you've done a good job going step by step. Now I need you to fall back. I need you to trust in what I've done in Christ. There's this situation that's beyond your control. It's beyond your means to solve it or handle it. And this is that point where you put your hope in me and you fall back and you rest in me. And I love what, what Peter says there in, in, in verse 9 as you work just towards the end of this passage that we read. He says to those, you're receiving the end result of your faith. There is this ultimate thing that God wants to do. You're receiving it even now. It's not as if you wait until you die Oh, I got to wait until I die to get the full benefits of what it means to live in Christ. No, what does Peter say? You are receiving this end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are receiving it even now. It's guaranteed. This is your hope. This is what you put your faith and your trust in. And so every day as you live your life, you're going to have these moments because you're receiving this guarantee of your hope. You fall back. Trust me. I'm there for you. And so here's what I think Peter would say to us as we, as, as, we, as we move forward in this letter that he's written to the church. Peter would say Christians live in hope-filled assurance. 
that who God calls them to be, they will become. That what God calls them to do, he will achieve. And where God calls them to go, he will lead. Can I say it again? Let this sink in, church, that, that we live in this hope-filled assurance that the person God is calling you to be, you will become. He didn't call you to be holy and then not give you his Holy Spirit to help you be holy. The person God is calling you to be, you will become through him. The things that God is calling you to do, he didn't call you to do them if he wasn't going to achieve them with you and for you. And friends, where he calls you to go, he will not send you alone. He will lead you. He will go before you. This is our living hope. And it's unlike anything you'll experience in the world. Man, who lives this way? Who lives this way? The elect. I will tell you about some folks that I think live this way. Uh, I was with some friends this week. My friends Rick and Jeffrey, they, they came to town. They brought their wives. They could have went on vacation anywhere in the United States. And they chose Bentonville, Arkansas. And they don't even like mountain biking. They chose to come here. They said, yeah, we're going to come to Bentonville for a week. And we want to spend time with you. And we want to take you and your wife out to dinner. And so we played golf one day. And then we went out to dinner. And our wives had really not had a chance to get to know one another. Rick and Jeffrey are both pastors and leaders in, in our church. And, and so we really have a lot in common. And um, we're sitting at dinner and we're getting to know one another. And in the course of the, the conversation, Lauren had a chance to tell her story. And, and one of the main chapters in her story is this decision that her parents made. Their names are Doug and Pam. They made a decision to become missionaries in the Church of the Nazarene. And so I'm hearing Lauren tell a little bit of this story, a story that I've heard before. And it really is a story of, of just falling back and, and trusting in this living hope that we have in Christ. Her dad, Doug, was a youth pastor at Nashville First Church of the Nazarene in the late 80s. And God was calling them to, to serve the Lord cross-culturally. And so they began to explore that. And eventually the church said, we have an opportunity in West Africa. There's a country there called Cote d'Ivoire, which in English means the Ivory Coast. We want you to go to Cote d'Ivoire and we want you to develop churches and leaders and help start a seminary and help pastors with theological education. And so they said yes to that. And I heard Lauren telling this to our, our friends there at dinner. And in my mind, I was replaying a home video that I've seen. And it's the send-off service where the Runyon family is, is going off to language school and they're going off to, to Africa. And in this, this home video that they have, uh, they've sold their house. They've sold pretty much everything they own. And, and, and the rest of what they own is in a station wagon. It's this massive station wagon. It's bigger than a cargo ship. Um, I think it was made by Ford. And um, the Runyon family are in this station wagon. Doug and Pam are in the front. Uh, Lauren and her brother are in the second seat. And then the third child, they put the third child where we put third children, in the back of the station wagon, on top of the suitcases, plastered against the back windshield, is Ashley. She's like this. 
And, and uh, it was either there or tired to the top of the roof. And they said, ah, let's put her in the windshield. It was the 80s. You could do that. Apparently, you didn't need seatbelts back then. So I have this, this, this video of this family just packing up every, everything they own and, and going off to serve Jesus and preparing for cross-cultural ministry in the Ivory Coast. And Pam tells me that when, she, when they made that decision, people always ask her two questions. The first question was always related to their safety. Oh my goodness, you're going outside the United States. Don't you know it's dangerous outside the United States? How can you, how can you be sure that, that your kids and your family is going to be safe? I think maybe we could ask that question of really anywhere we live. But the but question's always related to their safety. And then there was this question, the second question she always got was, what about your kids' education? I mean, what are the schools like over there? Are your kids going to be educated? Are they going to have opportunities? Are they going to have the same opportunities that they would have here in the United States? And there really was a lot of unknown. There really was a lot of unknown in, 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 in really the whole experience, but specifically to those two questions. And it's, and it's fun to be on this side of the story. Lauren's one of three siblings. One sibling got a PhD from Oxford University. You may have heard it. It's in England. It was founded in like the 1200s, but who's counting? One sibling got a PhD from Oxford. Uh, her other sibling uh, graduated from college, has three kids, owns her own business, lives in Kansas City, done very well. God's richly blessed her. And then I think you see how things have worked out for Lauren. And one of the things about, about what God is, is writing even now, it was a few years ago that, that Lauren made this decision to, to help start a nonprofit here in town called Canopy. And Canopy resettled refugees or resettles refugees even to this day. And you remember that question I asked you about what would it be like if you had to pack all of your stuff into a bag and flee to a, a place for your safety? Well, there were people that experienced that exact thing. And along the journey, they found themselves in the United States. And Lauren was part of a group of people that said, you know, if they're going to live in the United States, they might as well live in the best part of the United States, which is Northwest Arkansas. And so she, would, she was part of a team that, that, that helped people settle here and helped them acclimate to life here. And at one point, something really snapped into focus for her. She said, I'm working with people from the continent of Africa where I grew up. I'm speaking French with them, which I learned when my parents made a decision to be missionaries in the Church of the Nazarene. And I'm doing it all here in Arkansas. And along the way, I get to tell them about Jesus. I get to witness, I get to let them see what, a fate, what it looks like to be a, a follower of Jesus. How in the world... Would God, how in the world would you script all of that? But her parents made a decision to fall back. Her parents made a decision to trust in this living hope. They've been born into a living hope. And let me tell you about this living hope. It will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never fade. You can take it to the bank. You can trust in God. What he says he will do, where he leads, he will go. 
what he, who he calls you to be, he will ultimately make you to become that person. This is our hope. And it's built upon Jesus. You could take it to the bank. How many of us today need to fall back? How many of us just need to recognize that God has proven himself faithful time and time again. And you're in a situation where you don't know what the future looks like. You don't know what your next move is. It's beyond your ability to fix, to plan, to strategize. And you're just holding on to what you can and you're all out of moves. And for how many of us today, the Lord is saying, would you just fall back? Would you just put your hope and your trust in me? Because you are my elect. You are my chosen. I love you. Love you. And I'm not going to let you fall. I want to invite you to put your hope in Jesus today.